Shalom. Welcome to the Crimson Thread. I'm John Burns, pastor of Restoration Messianic Fellowship in the Boulder, Longmont area of Northern Colorado. This teaching was recorded in a live Midrashic setting. We've edited it for clarity, but you may notice some jumps where we've taken out inaudible comments and sidetracks. Enjoy the study. All right, so we are in Ephesians, and last time we got well started on chapter 1, and we finished up through verse 14, and we talked about predestination and free will and so forth. And the other thing we did, of course, is we linked Ephesians to the letter to the Ephesians in Revelation and to the parable of the sore in the book of Matthew. Now, before we continue on in Ephesians, and we'll start there in verse 15, I actually want to take a minute and go back to uh, Revelation, and we're in Revelation 2, which is the letter to Ephesus. And one of the things that I've asserted is that all three of these sections of Scripture, the parable and the two letters, one from Paul and one from Yeshua, are addressing the same church with the same problems. And the problem with Ephesus, according to Revelation 2, is that they've lost their first love. And one of the things we didn't talk about last time is what was their first love? Studying. I would, I would suggest maybe not. The comment was studying because the thing that Yeshua compliments them for at the beginning is their really sound doctrine. And they, you know, you have guys that come through and claim to be apostles, and these guys, you know, check what they're saying in scripture and, and nail them as to the fact that they're not teaching sound doctrine. So I will suggest to you that study is not their problem. Okay, comment was they slipped from born-again excitement into Torah terrorism, and I think that's probably on the right track. Okay, so the first love is the gospel, which is that Yeshua died for their sins and so forth, and that was the first love, and that they've now slipped into dry academic study. Slipped back into the world, okay. Let's read on, and maybe we get a clue. And I'm now in Revelation 2, verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Ah, so Yeshua is prescribing a remedy for their loss of their first love, and that remedy is whatever the works were that they did at first that they are no longer doing. Again, I'm just doing grammar here, okay? I'm not doing anything weird. Okay, so the, the comment is, that it depends on what you call works, and if you go to James, works translates into obedience. I will suggest, and this isn't anything better than any of y'all have said, okay? I'm just going to suggest that the problem has to do with the love of people, not the love of God. In other words, they're really, really hot on the word, they're really, really hot on doctrine, they're really hot on studying, I think that they are still fascinated with God. I don't think that's the love that they've lost. I think that they may have lost charity. 
the things that they did as a community, uh, the things that they did for people. And I don't know that I would necessarily call it Torah terrorism, but that would certainly be a symptom. Could be. Yeah, the comment was that they're, they're going on their neighbor's properties and stomping on their Easter eggs. That certainly could be. Yeah. The, the, again, the comment was that uh, there's a difference between studying for your own edification and your own elevation and studying for the purpose of spreading the Word of God and spreading the Kingdom of God and, and so forth. But, and all those are you know, perfectly good comments. But it, as I say, the, given that works is the cure for the loss of their love, it strikes me that we're talking about something to do with other people. Could be obedience, but again, you get the impression that these guys are really hot for the Word of God. And I, and I think that they don't eat any shrimp and they don't go with people who do. But I could be wrong. Gaylene said it very well, I think, that their study has taken an inward focus. And they're studying for their own purposes and not to spread the word and not necessarily in, a, in an evangelical sense but there are, there's a certain class of people that I know something you don't know and therefore because I know something you don't know I'm above you could be some of that and again the comment was that if you go through scripture it says over and over again that you take care of the poor the fatherless and the widow and not doing that is, I think, something that would upset God. And, and again, it's something that can be cured by works. So, yeah, all of these comments are good. But again, I just wanted to sort of bring you back and point you at what's going on here. Because again, as we read the letter of Paul, there's going to be a tremendous emphasis on love, not love of God, but love of other people. There's not going to be so much emphasis on knowledge, although it'll be there, but uh, Paul's emphasis is very much on love, as we'll see today when we get into it. Now, the second thing that I want to point out in the, in the, the letter to Ephesus, and that is in verse 6. And you remember last time I said that the, the, the pattern of this particular letter is, this is what you're doing well, nevertheless, this is what you're doing bad, and then, yet you have this. And so the, it, it's sort of like, that's good, whack, slaps them across the face, and then sort of gives them a little bit of a, a, a boost at the end so he doesn't end on a negative note. So verse 6, Yet this you have, that you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Who and or what are the Nicolaitans? I don't, I don't think we talked about that last time. Yeah, I, I don't know who they are either. But the Greek word is Nicolaitan. There's another word that's very much like it. It's called Nicodemus. In fact, they are next door neighbors in Strong's. And both of them have to do with conquest or destruction. No, 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 no. Nicolaitans and Nicodemus are... Nicodemus is the guy in the gospel who came to Yeshua and was told that he had to be born again. So his name is Nicodemus. And then the Nicolaitans show up here 
and then they show up in the Church of Pergamum. But in Greeks, Strong's, they are next door neighbors. Both of them start with the prefix Nico, and the prefix Nico means either to conquer or to destroy. And then the laity in a church, that term comes from the second half of Nicolaitans. So you have to rule over or to destroy the laity. Or the way it's in Strong's is to conquer or to destroy the people. Nicodemus means virtually the same thing. So democracy uh, means rule by the people. So the, the Greek demos, I, I mean, I don't know what the Greek word is, but you know, democracy, uh, again, it means to rule over or conquer the people. In other words, both words mean virtually the same thing. And one of the things that I have heard as a speculation as to what the Nicolaitans are is basically a, an organized church priesthood, a la the Catholic Church, where they rule over the laity. Now, all I'm going from here is the definition of the words. I have no other information. So Yeshua may be talking about that. He may be talking about something completely different. You know, he may be talking about a tribe of Swabians that, you know, I you know, have no idea. But based on the definition of the words, that is one of the common speculations as to what the Nicolaitans are and what the doctrine of the Nicolaitans becomes, which is to say, and, and Pergamum would be appropriate for that because by the time you get to Pergamum, that has now become a doctrine as opposed to simply a tendency. And again, if what I'm saying is correct, and I don't know that it is, but if it is, what he's saying to this church is, you're really good at discerning false apostles. You're not really good at loving people. However, you are fiercely independent and you will not let anybody rule over you in religious matters. With which I agree, Yeshua. And again, I have nothing to base that on other than the definition of the words. What's happened in Ephesus is they in fact hate the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. In other words, uh, the idea is that you don't have a group of specialists who hold the word and dole it out to the people. And again, one of the things we've talked about in, in Midrash quite a number of times is in the patriarchs you have two instances where a big hitter goes someplace to get a wife and he finds a well that's stopped up and the shepherds are controlling access to the well. First one, of course, is Jacob, when he goes up to Haran, and the second one, of course, is Moses, where he, when he goes to Midian. And in both cases, he finds a well in the middle of the wilderness, and that well is being guarded or controlled by shepherds, and they are controlling when and under what circumstances the sheep can drink. And the comment that I make to that is one of the things that organized religion does. I mean, they, they don't have any problem giving the sheep the word, but they want the word to come through them, and they want the word to be interpreted by them, and they want 
the sheep not to be able to go anywhere else for the word. So you see that pattern in scripture. And for Yeshua then to speak against that, I think is not a big stretch. Now, again, understand that I'm putting a lot of freight on the Greek definition of a word here. So take all of that with an appropriate amount of salt. So now back to Ephesians. And let's pick it up in chapter 1, verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord, Yeshua, and your love toward all the saints. And again, we're talking about love here. Now, again, when was the letter to the Ephesians written? Okay, late 40s, early 50s. So it's, it's fairly soon after the crucifixion. All the apostles are still alive. Paul is writing them a letter saying, I have heard of your love for all the saints. Forty years later, Yeshua is writing and saying, you've lost your first love. So this letter is being written fairly early within the first maybe ten years of the existence of that church. And then somewhere around 90, which is when most people think that Revelation was written, you have them having lost that love. So again, I'm going to suggest that there's a correspondence here. Verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of your Lord Yeshua Messiah, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. All right. So, who is giving the spirit of wisdom and of revelation? The Father. And again, this, there's going to be some grammar here that we're going to have to work our way through. So it's the Father who is giving the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, and who's Him? I think it's the Father, but if you think it's the Son, it's the same being, so we're okay. <laughs> you know, we aren't going to go too far astray here. Verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, there's now going to be three things. There's a list of three. So having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. One. What are the riches of this glorious inheritance in the saints? Two. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Three. So those are the three things that Paul is praying that the spirit of wisdom and revelation sent by God to the Ephesian church will give them. And what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What does that mean? Whose inheritance? It's his inheritance. It's not our inheritance. And it's not your inheritance. It's his inheritance. So who's he? God. I think it's God. So what is the inheritance of God? It's always Israel. Well, no, 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 I I take that back. It is not always Israel. I I take that back. Um, And I've got, if you look at uh, Exodus 34, 9, it's Israel. So Moses has got the new set of rocks. And down to verse 8, I'm 34, 8. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, 
and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. So that's the first place it shows up. So Moses is pleading with God to take Israel, the nation, for his, God's, inheritance. That's repeated in Deuteronomy. If you want to reference it's Deuteronomy 4.20. Now let's try Psalm 78.71. He chose David his servant and took him from the sheep droves, from following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob his people, Israel his inheritance. So again, that's Israel is God's inheritance. And then let's, let's try the Isaiah one here. And I'm, so I'm, I'm in Isaiah 19.24. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. So that's still Israel. One of the places he does say, all the people of the earth. And I'm trying to find that one, and I'm not doing a very good job. So the last one I've got is Psalm 82. If it isn't that one, we're out of luck. Psalm 82, verse 8. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. So, coming back to our Ephesians passage, making great progress here. The three things that Paul is praying, that the spirit of wisdom and revelation will provide for the Ephesians, is that they may know what is the hope to which he has called you. In other words, why has he called you to be one of his own? And what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? In other words, the inheritance is God's inheritance. So the riches of God's inheritance in the saints, I'm suggesting is what does he want to do with the body of people who come to him? Or said another way, what are the benefits of being a member of the body of people who are God's inheritance? And then what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? And again, that's the third thing that Paul hopes they will realize is the power that God makes available to those who are his own. Yeah, the comment, comment was that uh, we have a triplet, and one of the things that we have said many times in the past is whenever you have triplets in Scripture, you ought to look at it, because very, very, very often, each part of the triplet will correspond to one of God's attributes, and, you know, Father, Son, and Spirit. So, again, the, the triplet here is the hope to which he has called you, and, and Kay suggesting that the calling then is the word, logos, the son. The riches of his, his glorious inheritance, inheritance would be the father's inheritance, and then of course the Holy Spirit is the power source of God. So the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us. Very good. So now I'm all the way down to maybe, let's pick it up at 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Messiah when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And all those are modifications to his power. 
the subject of that phrase is the power of God, and then it's, you know, according to the working of his might, and then the, the example of that is the raising of Christ, and or Messiah, and the moving him up to sit as his right hand. And then far above all rule and authority, and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, but not only in this age, but also in the one to come. One of the things that's going to show up later on is the rulers of the present age. And we're going to run into them in either chapter 2 or chapter 3. So what he's setting up here is the comparison between Messiah and the rulers of the world. And he'll talk about that later on, but this is sort of by way of you know, prefiguring what the letter is going to be talking about. 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So the spiritual regime, if you will, is going to be different in the the age to come because at least as, as I read Revelation, at the end of this age, the beast, the false prophet, and the man of sin all get cast into the lake of fire as does, I believe, Satan. So there's going to be a new regime in the world to come. So what he's saying is Christ is not only above the powers and principalities in this world, he will also be above them, or whatever their equivalent is, in the next world. So 22. He put all things under his feet. I think so. The Father put all things under the feet of his Son and gave him, the Son, as head over all things to the church, or the ecclesia, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the the body is the fullness of Messiah. In, In other words, with him being up in heaven at the right hand of God and all that stuff, he isn't down here able to do stuff. We're the ones that are supposed to be doing stuff, and we then become the fullness of Christ on earth by doing the things that he has called us to do. As I say, there's, there's a lot in here, but it's just all knotted up in a wad. The fact that Paul has had incredible revelation is absolutely true. But as I said at the beginning of the hour last time, among the many gifts that God gave Paul, why couldn't he have given him the gift of clear exposition? Because, I mean, you know, we've been snarling with this for an hour and 45 minutes, you know, an hour last time and 45 minutes so far this time, and it's even worse in Galatians. Let's take a run at chapter 2 and see if we can get the first paragraph out of the way. And you who were dead in trespass and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." That in mind is all one sentence. He's saying you, the Ephesians, were once dead, which is 
not alive to God, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin, and you were following the lead of the prince of the power of the air, that same spirit which is at work in the sons of disobedience. So you have you guys who have come to Messiah and are studying his word and doing your best and all that kind of stuff, but out there there are still the sons of disobedience. And the sons of disobedience are following the prince of the power of the air as you once did yourselves. So among whom, the sons of disobedience, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. In other words, we used to be one of them. We were living in the passions of our flesh, as are they, you know, parenthetically, right? In the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So what he's saying is, you used to be children of wrath. You used to be ones who would did whatever it is you wanted to do because you were following in the path of the prince of the power of the air. So he's now differentiating them from all the rest of the world, which they used to be part of. And, oh, by the way, parenthetically, all the stuff that you used to do, they're still doing. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loves us, even when we're dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Messiah, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Messiah Yeshua, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Messiah Yeshua. That's another sentence. The first sentence is, you used to be dead in your trespasses sin. You used to follow the prince of the power of the air, right? But God, being rich in his mercy, made you alive together with Messiah. And what does that mean? Made you alive together with Messiah. Raised you from the dead. Raised you from the dead, right? But I will suggest that it starts off, you were dead in the trespasses and sins. So if he made you alive together with Messiah, what he's got to be talking about there is resurrection. Not resurrection at the end of the age, but the resurrection that happens when you go through a mikvah. In other words, you have, you have transitioned from the realm of death into the realm of life. Now, verse 6, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Messiah Yeshua. Is anybody seated in the heavenly places of Messiah Yeshua? Not right now. I'm suggesting that this is a, a bestowal of rank, not a bestowal of a seat. In other words, he has seated you on the throne. Not that your physical butt's in the chair, but you are positionally, if you will, you are the king. So the king, even when he's walking through town, is the one who is seated on the throne. Okay, well, let's get to verse 7 and will you do your image. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Messiah Yeshua. That's a good explanation and I'll try and repeat it. 
so it gets on tape. What Galen says, and with which I agree, is as you see this sea of souls, you have, if you will, a tangible demonstration of the magnitude of his grace. Not that he can show his grace to you individually there, it's that this group of people that belong to him are, look at all of these demonstrations of my grace, or look at all these examples of my grace. And his inheritance is all of those gracious examples, which is us. We'll come back and we'll start, you know, probably up in verse 4 next time. Make a run at it again. Would somebody like closing prayer? Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this study and would like to hear more, go to www.crimsonthread.com. There you'll find this study in its entirety, as well as other resources for studying the scriptures from a messianic perspective. Thank you and shalom.